sounds a bit sassy, but I'm fine with that. <laughs> <laughs> Hello there and welcome to the EuropeLex podcast. I'm Ewan Healy and in this week's episode we're going to be speaking to a very, very special guest. Uh, that's America Alexa's team leader, Liam Meisner. And we will also be welcoming back our very own Poland correspondent, Michal Kanarski, uh, to explain to us all the developments regarding the upcoming presidential election. And let me tell you, there have been developments. With me, of course, is EuropeLex's Gabriel Hedengren. Gabriel, how are you doing? Hi. Yeah, I'm good. How are you? Yeah, very well. Um, lovely weather where I've been. I know it's really hot and sunny. Like the yeah, sun. I'm in East London too. It's like 26 degrees. It's been yes, really enjoying this time of lockdown. Yeah, I just I just wish I had a balcony to be honest or a garden. <laughs> yes, I'm just a flat flat rat. Um, well, so much new, so much news this week, which is very exciting, and actually elections starting to to happen and being in the plans and. You can feel politically the exit from sort of the COVID-19. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you can see the, the politicians starting to, to gear themselves up for the rest of the year's political onslaught after what's been a little bit of a respite from the normal political back and forth. Yeah, for sure. Um, I guess let's just go straight into the news bulletin then. Let's get going. So I want to take you to Spain first, um, our friends uh, in Southern Europe. So the wheels are currently in motion for regional elections in Spain to return after their first postponement with the Basque Country and Galicia now scheduled for the 12th of July. Uh, the ruling parties in both regions are expected to do very well with the centre-right Partido Popular, a member of the, the EPP group expected to win in Galicia with an absolute majority of votes, according to current polls, up from 46% in 2016. Largely thanks to the popularity of regional leader Alberto Núñez Perú. In the Basque Country, the current governing coalition of the regionalist PNV uh, and the centre-left PSE-EE is expected to be re-elected with a majority between the two parties. For the first time in Spanish history, however, these elections will see a joint list between PP and Ciudadanos, uh, the member of the Renew Europe group, with the country watching closely at this cooperation and what it could mean on the national level for the future of the two parties. Planning for elections in Catalonia has been a little bit more complicated with a government previously pointing to an early elections in the autumn, but these ideas are now expected to be on hold due to COVID-19. As ever, follow us across our platforms for the latest on all of those elections. Yes, so moving on to France, I guess north, up a notch in Europe geographically, the liberal uh, La République En Marche lost its majority in the lower house in France this week due to seven MPs leaving the party uh, in order to form a new group called Ecologie, Démocratie, Solidarité. That's so French, I love it. Um, and that raises the number of MPs who have left the party since 2017 to 17. Uh, the main reason for the decision is that the government has moved to the right when it comes to economic policies. And these MPs say that France need more center-left economic policies, which is why they're leaving. Adding to the decision, there was a big fight in the party before and during the municipal elections, where in municipalities like Paris and Lyon, the République en Marche had two candidates, one officially backed by the party and another backed by dissidents. The most high-profile example is Cédric Villani, 
Um, and he was even expelled from the party after he decided to run as a La République en Marche dissident uh, in the Parisian municipal election. Because of this, uh, the party's candidate in Paris, Agnès Buzyn, received only 17.3% and came third, while Villani came fifth with 7.8%. So he definitely took a chunk of her votes. So that being said, it's worth noting that the government in France is not likely to fall anytime soon, uh, as it's made up of three different parties who between them still hold a comfortable majority in the lower house of parliament. But the status of La République en marche itself, Emmanuel Macron's party, has, uh, has weakened. And who knows what that will mean for, the, for its future. Now down to one of Europe's island nations, Cyprus, uh, where we have a new poll. Um, it's the first time we've had a, a poll for quite a while in Cyprus um, ahead of the next legislative election, expected to take place almost exactly a year from now in May 2021. Uh, in this new poll, the centre-right uh, Busy, the ISY, uh, a member of the EPP, and left-wing uh, centre-left Akel, a member of the, the GUA NGL, continue to dominate. Uh, the ISY is first with 33%, a slight increase from their 2016 legislative election performance, and Akel follows with 23%, just a little bit lower than their performance last time. A traditional kingmaker centrist party, DECO, which is a member of the Socialist and Democrats group, uh, seems to be in trouble since offshoot DEPA, uh, that is reported to be flirting with the Renew Europe group, seems to be set to walk away with a significant chunk of their vote. Uh, to be exact, DEPA is a third now with 6%, and DECO is down to 4% alongside the Greens and far-right group, ELAM. In another development um, in political constitutional news, uh, the leader of IDEC, a party affiliated with the Socialists and Democrats, which recently kicked out its only MEP from its ranks, has suggested an increase to the number of MPs from 80 to 90, by adding 10 state deputies, that is MPs that would be elected by voters. In practice, only 56 seats are currently occupied by Greek Cypriot MPs. The other 24 belong to Turkish Cypriot community, but haven't been electing representatives since the 1960s. So a potential increase would raise the number of active MPs to 63. So from small Cyprus, uh, we move on to Germany, where a legal storm has been brewing for almost five years now, and it came to head this week, as judges at the European Court of Justice ruled in criticism of the German Supreme Court. Uh, so Germany's highest court had ruled last week that the European Central Bank's bond-buying scheme uh, which is which was a key tenet of the EU's response to the financial crisis, was outside the remit of the economic institution and rebutted against the previous uh, ECJ ruling, claiming that Germany was not bound by the EU court's decision. Um, so in response, the European Court of Justice has sought to remind Germany that all EU member states and their courts are responsible for the full execution and implementation of EU law. This case is a direct test of the European Union's legal uh, primacy in the Union and the Eurozone's most influential status that. So uh, it's not received great media attention outside of Germany, but it's still a big deal um, in European politics from this week. Definitely have an influence for, for a long time on, on the relationship between yeah. Germany and the Eurozone and the ECB. Moving out of Europe for a second, let's go over to Israel where Benjamin Netanyahu has once again been sworn in on Sunday the 17th as Israel's new prime minister. That's after over a year of political deadlock and heavy coverage across our platforms, three general elections. Um, his National Conservative Likud party has formed a government supported by Benny Gantz's center liberal Blue and White Party. 
as well as a, a smaller number of religious right-wing and center parties. Now, Benny Gantz will serve as defense minister for 18 months before becoming the prime minister under a rotation agreement. Despite this appointment, Netanyahu's trial on charges of bribery, fraud, and breach of trust will still go ahead at the end of this month. So it could all come tumbling down just so soon after it's been established. So many elections in Israel. I wonder when we'll see our next one. Uh, so back to electoral news uh, from our continent. Several countries across Europe are expected to head for early national parliament elections this summer and autumn as governing parties enjoy sort of coronavirus boost uh, or, you know, elections have been scheduled for, for obvious reasons, uh, some of which we've already touched on. Um, Serbia has this week dissolved its parliament ahead of elections in late June with incumbent EPP member party SNS expected to take an absolute majority of the vote in that election. Uh, despite what should be good news for the ruling party, SNS, the political environment they preside over in Serbia is less than good at the moment, you can say. So pro and anti-government politicians have this week gone on hunger strike in protest um, against problems with Serbian democracy and uh, others over government relations with Kosovo. Riot police have had to be used as well to break up anti-government protests. So uh, relatively chaotic in, in Serbian national politics at the moment. And meanwhile, just across the southern border of Serbia, political leaders in the Republic of North Macedonia have met this week uh, to discuss a new date for the election uh, with the center-left SDSM party proposing June 21st, so in just about a month's time. Uh, but other parties are disagreeing with that and proposing later dates in July, August, or September. So that one's up in the air as well. And just to do another roundup of elections upcoming, we're going to have a head over to look at Croatia where Croatia has now got a date for an election on July the 5th. Uh, this country's current government is led by centre-right European Council member and Prime Minister Andrei Plenković um, of the HDZ party, which is a member of the European People's Party group. The election will be interesting as Miroslav Skoro's new National Conservative Alliance is looking to get as much as 15%, according to some recent polls. Finally, as part of our upgrading and increasing of coverage and content, uh, Europelex is very proud to roll out reporting from non-EU nations. The first of our non-EU countries, apart from the UK, of course, awkward, um, to earn a rolling polling average is Iceland, which is now live on our website. In case you don't already know, we have an average of all polls updated weekly for every country on our website. Check them out to get an overview of what an election tomorrow might look like in countries across Europe. And this data then, of course, feeds into our uh, our monthly European parliamentary projection as well. So head to our website to check out all of our lovely charts. And of course, this is perfectly timed for coverage of Iceland's upcoming presidential elections. Uh, just a quick rundown of what's going on. There are six candidates announced for the presidential election, but only the incumbent president, former historian Gudni Guðnason, uh, has so far received the sufficient 1,500 signatures required to make the ballot paper to be a candidate in the elections. Signatures have been collected electronically for the first time in Icelandic history due to the coronavirus pandemic. And of course, stick around with Europelex for all the latest coverage. Yes, and now we're going to move on to Poland and our uh, Poland editor, Michelle, who I sat down with a bit earlier to, to talk about the political situation there. But first, a word from our sponsor, which is, which is us. Are you listening to this podcast on iTunes? or another platform that allows for reviews, and please drop us a review. Uh, and why not make it five stars as well? 
Um, it'll only take you a minute and it'll mean the world for us and help other people find our fantastic little podcast and politics community. Maybe even do it while you're listening to Mikhail talk about politics in Poland now. As we all know, the 2020 electoral calendar has been radically reshuffled uh, due to COVID-19. However, the closest we've come to a national level election in recent weeks um, has been in Poland, where there was uh, a fight to the very end about whether or not uh, the country's presidential elections uh, would take place. Um, In the end, as I assume you all know by now, they were delayed pretty much at the very last minute. And as a lot has happened in a very short time, and we now have this uh, campaign ahead of us in Poland that will last for an uncertain amount of time, uh, we've invited our Europlex colleague, uh, Michelle Kronarski, to discuss the current status of the campaign and what we can expect from the coming months. As I said, it's not been more than a week since the elections were supposed to take place. Um, what can you tell us about the public reaction to this sort of circus that there was uh, around that date? Um, and when polls can expect to go back to the polls. Okay, so to give some more uh, details about yeah. all the situation, on 6 May, Jarosław Glowin, the leader of Agreement Party, and Jarosław Kaczyński, the leader of Law and Justice Party, uh, made an agreement to move the elections. And after that, the Polish Electoral Commission moved the elections uh, for the unknown date. Uh, people were rather confused, were rather confused and happy or angry with this decision. Uh, according to Paul for Rzeczpospolita, the Govin Kaczyński agreement uh, had support at 44% and 36% were against. The rest was undecided. So the movement of the election day was met with support from opposition. Mm-hmm. Uh, parties and even throw pro law and justice areas of Polish of Polish politics. Uh, so, answering to your question, according to Polish press, the most possible date for now uh, for the election uh, is twenty eighth June two thousand and twenty. Cool. So, uh, about a month from now, then. Um... So I guess moving on to the various candidates that are standing, um, there's obviously the main, uh, the favorite, which is the incumbent president, Andrzej Duda, uh, from the right-wing Law and Justice Party. Uh, and he's been the favorite for a while. Uh, I mean, even in some polls not too long ago, he was at above 60%, um, which would definitely make him a winner in just the first round of the election. Uh, what can you say about the polls um, for Duda uh, in the past week or so? Uh, and how likely is it that we'll see the election go to a second round? Yeah, so in my opinion, the most interesting poll for now is social, social changes poll for Politice. Uh, it was released today. Uh, why? Because social changes used to be very pro-peace. Mm-hmm. And Politice is uh, Polish right-wing uh, press. So, yeah, it could be very biased. But today, they released, they released a poll in which Duda will get only 41%. Wow. And in comparison to the, another poll uh, made by Social Changes, but this poll included former uh, civic platform candidate Fideva Błońska, mm-hmm. Andrzej Duda had 49%. 
so it's a loss eight points eight yeah, points in a short amount of time uh so um i guess we can move straight on to um civic platform so um if duda gets below 50 percent in the election uh it does look like there's sort of a two-horse race for who'll be who he'll be up against in a second round. Uh, however, the biggest mainstream force, uh, as you mentioned, is the center-right civic platform. Um, and part of this decline for Duda that you mentioned um, has come as a reaction, uh, if I'm not mistaken, to a new candidate being um, chosen in the last week for the party, um, yeah. Rafal Tchaikovsky. Um, what can you tell us about this change? Why did it happen? And why is it giving um, civic platform a boost? Okay, so there were two main candidates for candidates of civic platform. Uh, first one was Radosław Sikorski, his former uh, Polish Minister of Foreign Affairs. Yeah. But the problem with Sikorski is that there was a huge wiretaping scandal in 2014 in Poland. And that's probably the main reason why civic platform uh, lost both presidential and parliamentary election in 2015. Mm -hmm. uh, Sikorski was involved in the scandal, so he doesn't have much support from Polish voters right now. The other candidate was Rafał Trzaskowski, as you mentioned. Uh, he is from more progressive faction of civic platform. Uh, he is liberal, centrist, some, some, some people call him center-left, uh, he is an incumbent president of Warsaw, the capital of Poland, and he won this election uh, in the first round. So he has a lot of support, mainly from city areas. Mm -hmm. uh, he isn't very popular in rural areas, uh, but he still has a chance. Interesting. Um, so you have Tchaikovsky then, which is gaining momentum, which is civic platform. And then in third place is this dark horse, Simon Holovnia, uh, which I don't think a lot of people outside of Poland uh, have opened their eyes to yet. So he's a journalist and a Shiva presenter running as an independent. Where have I heard that before? <laughs> and um, what can you tell us about his campaign? And is there any chance at all that he'll come in second place, do you think? Or has he lost his chance now that Shavskovsky has entered the scene? Uh, yeah, so support for Holovnia was slowly growing for last two months. And uh, pollster polls for uh, Super Express, for Polish, probably the biggest tabloid in Poland, uh, showed that Holovnia doesn't have a chance to get in the second round, but if he will get in the second round, he can get 49%, while Duda mm -hmm. will get 51%. So there are only two percent points between them. Because now the campaign is uh, very internet-focused. And yes. uh, it's hard to, hard to say who is the main candidate to get in the second round. So what are the, what are the main issues? I assume it's mostly related to the coronavirus response, as that's front of mind. Is there any uh, anything else that's becoming uh, a hot topic? I guess other other than uh, the whole constitutional 
issue of when the election is held? Are those the two things everyone's talking about? Yes, but a few days ago, uh, another Polish radio public broadcaster, number three, they have these rankings after every week for the most popular song in Poland. Okay. And uh, during last, uh, in the last ranking, uh, anti-peace song won this rank. Ah. And Peace decided to block this song. And uh, they played another song uh, without, without saying any word why they decided, why they decided to block this, this song. Uh, so the song was blocked, banned by uh, current government. Even though it's not the most important topic during this campaign, uh, it still has an impact on Polish society. Interesting. So, time to get my head around. It's obviously, you have a right-wing government, and then you have two opposition candidates that both seem relatively center, center-right. Um, what's the status of the, of the left in Poland? <laughs> That's a very <laughs> interesting topic. A touchy topic. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, in Poland, left is really weak. Uh, there is a term in uh, English political studies, uh, PASOKification, it's from Greece, when yeah. the PASOK uh, lost their support, while right-wing and center-right parties gained this support from uh, PASOK voters. Mm-hmm. And the same thing happened in Poland, because there was a big party, it, w- it used to be big, SLD, Mm-hmm. Uh, United Left Alliance, I think that's the translation. Uh, it used to be very big. It used to be the government party for a couple of years, but after that, they now they have only about ten percent points, and it's not even them. It's a coalition of party, uh, Robert Biedroń's party, and Razem party, probably the most left-wing party in mainstream politics in Poland. Uh, So the left is very weak, and so is the left candidate, Robert Biedroń. For now, he's polling around uh, six or five or even three. So he doesn't have a chance to get in the second round, I think. Yeah, that doesn't get you very far in the two rounds. Yeah, but according (laughs) to... Uh, according to the same poll that showed Hawogna with 49%, uh, the poll also included uh, the second round scenario with Duden Trzaskowski and Duden Kosiniak-Kamysz, center-right PSL part. Mm-hmm. And Trzaskowski, he has only 47%, while Kosiniak-Kamysz uh, has 49%, just as Szymon Hawogna. Mm. So it depends who will get in the second round. Uh, probably Tchaikovsky is too liberal and too progressive for Polish center-right and right-wing voters mm-hmm. who doesn't support peace. But Kosiniak-Kamysz and Hovnia could be could get pretty high. Interesting. Well, thank you for coming to the podcast and, and clarifying this for us. Um, it's still looking, if I'm right, like it's our next 
big national uh, electoral event. So we'll definitely keep um, posting the polls and and cover it for our listeners, of course. And you'll be leading that, Michelle. So thank you. Thank you very much to you. EuropeLex is run by volunteers. We aren't funded by any big donors and we definitely aren't an institution of the European Union, as some of our lovely followers on Twitter seem to think. Uh, everything we do, including this podcast and our shiny new and improved website, is only possible because of the help of supporters. And we want to do more. And so what we've done is we've started sharing exclusive discussions, uh, special content and more via our Patreon, including this week, for example, an exclusive breakdown of all of the candidates in the Polish presidential election. Access all of that from us for as one euro a month and help support our project. We go back. Don't miss out. Support us on Patreon. Avid followers of the podcast will remember a few weeks ago we had on uh, Adam Lawless, the team leader from Asia Alex, um, and we thought what better thing to do than a few weeks later than to have another colleague from the Alex family all over the world and our colleague who leads America Alex. And with us today we've got Liam Meisner. Liam, how are you doing? Uh, good. Uh, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Great to have you on um, and to expand the the mindsets and, and the view of of our audience here today. Um, so let's get started with the real basics of America, Alex. How did it get started? So I think the idea for it was floating around for a while. There's a there's a Facebook group of like contributors to it that goes back to at least. December 2018 but it never really got off the ground it was just like a few people posting polls here or there there was no uh, Twitter account or anything posting posting much uh, but then in September of last year uh, I was already part of the Asia elects team covering Lebanon and we had had some discussion about uh, getting an American thing set up I was interested in working on that so that month, we kind of recruited a few more people. We had a few major elections coming up. Uh, Canada, Bolivia, Uruguay, and Argentina were all that fall. So we decided, hey, this is you know, the best time to, to get this up and running. We've got all this stuff to cover. Let's see what we can do with it. And uh, from there, it just took off. That's the real divide there between uh, Europe Alex and America Alex is that you use the word fall. Um, and it completely caught me by surprise. I, didn't, I, didn't, I wasn't aware, I wasn't expecting it. Um, so you mentioned the, the Canadian, uh, Bolivian, Uruguay elections. Um, obviously, there are a lot of countries in the Americas, but one place that has perhaps an oversaturation of political polls is the United States. Um, how do you make sure in your coverage that it isn't just wall-to-wall United States with a few other countries peppered in there as well? Yeah, that's definitely a huge concern, and it's something we're still trying to figure out, really. Um, you know, we don't want to swamp the readers with polls, especially since this is also stuff that's pretty ubiquitous. Like, if you follow, you know, U.S. politics to, to any degree, really, you're going to see these polls most days, whether it's, you know, presidential or it's for specific congressional or Senate races or for governor's races. Uh, so we want to figure out a way to, you know, make our coverage unique and interesting and not just like the same kind of stuff that everyone's already hearing. So we try to focus on polls that might show, uh, for example, a ver like this is the highest result that Trump has ever polled against Biden, or this is Biden's best result in Florida or something like that. Um, 
so it's it's sort of it's sort of all a work in progress we're we're still testing the waters trying to figure out what works best how to how to properly do this um so that we can bring people interesting informative coverage without as you said you know completely flooding them with uh u.s dominated stuff a difference between uh covering american politics um, and that's american across both continents um and covering european politics is, is that europe doesn't have such a you know a dominant political nation in the same way that the americas you know north america particularly does in the united states you know what other differences do you see between covering polls in uh the americas and also elsewhere in the world uh i think well, it, it's been tricky because especially with the with the model that we use, like in Europe, you have the very uh, clear cut model of the European Parliament groups. That's how you can divide these political parties and candidates. Um, it's all neat and tidy. Uh, we haven't got that in America. Uh, there's international affiliations, but those aren't as clear cut. So it's it's sort of trying to determine, you know, how do we how do we characterize these parties uh it takes it takes a lot of a lot of thinking and discussion uh another difference is we just don't get as much polling um you know the u.s has it regularly obviously canada has it pretty regularly but uh for other countries once a month is is not uncommon or or even less than that so it's it it can be you know hard to hard to get pretty comprehensive coverage but we try to fill that with other political news that maybe is not necessarily polls, but it's related to elections or parties reporting on, you know, candidates or just not candidates, politicians being jailed or something like that, or new parties being created. So we try to bring interesting content, even when we don't have necessarily polls to cover. A little bit different to the world of Italian politics, for example, where there are two opinion polls a day. Right. Um, what uh, political stories do you think that most people outside of uh, the Americas have missed in, in, in recent months? One of the things I've found really interesting recently, uh, one, one of these developments that's happened, is sort of the, the rise of indigenous-focused politics in a few countries in South America. And I think this has been fairly underreported uh, in, in North American news um, as most Latin American politics is. But uh, for example, in, in Ecuador, you have um, these protests against uh, President uh, Lenin Moreno in uh, the past few months. The indigenous federation, CONAI, has played a big role in these protests, and they will be running their own presidential candidate in the presidential elections next year in 2021 with their party, uh, Pachacutec. Uh, their candidate, Jaime Vargas, has pulled as high as 21%, and that's like about even with some of the other high-polling candidates, so he's definitely a major contender, which would be pretty unprecedented for Ecuador. Uh, and there's been an interesting debate in the party about, you know, do we pursue a more uh, indigenous-focused politics, or do we pursue like a more leftist, kind of Marxist-influenced line? And uh, that's been the, the latter has been pushed by another figure in the party, Leonidas Iza, who leads a peasant movement. And he was also considered a potential presidential candidate. Uh, in Peru, you have the, the Union for Peru, which is a 
really, really interesting party in my opinion. Uh, they, fo- they follow uh, this ideology called ethnocasserism, or at least that's a, that's a major faction within the party. And it's sort of like this indigenous ultra-nationalism, uh, very socially conservative in many ways, very xenophobic, uh, but also quite left-wing on economic issues. It's, it's a very weird party. Um, but they did quite well in the congressional elections this year and sort of turfed out the traditional left-wing uh, broad front from their, their base in South Peru. Uh, and have now become a major force. But they've also got these internal tensions. They had a split in Congress just a few days ago with some of the the members of the party leaving. Uh, And of course, in Bolivia, you've got the Movement for Socialism, the MAS of Evo Morales, which was ousted last year from the presidency uh, in what many called a coup after they won the presidential elections. Uh, they'll be looking to regain power in the elections scheduled for this year. Uh, it's a question of whether they'll happen or not. They've been postponed uh, because of the coronavirus. Uh, but they were really energized by uh, this anti-Indigenous sentiment that you saw coming uh, after the after Morales' ouster. Uh, people were burning the Wapala, the Indigenous flag, um, chanting, you know, sort of Christian supremacist slogans, stuff like that. Uh, so this has really galvanized the mass base and this election will be a question of whether they can, you know, overcome some of the dissatisfaction with them uh, after their years in government amongst the indigenous community and whether they can overcome some of the political repression that's uh, likely to be used against them by the interim government. A lot of um, you mentioned the Morales government, and that's a story, obviously, that's been covered a little bit more in in Europe. Um, and another one uh, being, of course, the election of of Jair Bolsonaro. Um, and that leads to this description, and, and the stories that you you mentioned there leads to this description. You also get sort of lazy post colonial analysis from um, European analysts of the the fact that South America is 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 just obsessed and, and full of, of populists and nationalists, revolutionaries, you know, sort of in, painting a picture of instability. You know, what, what do you think is actually a better way of describing politics in South America and Latin America at the moment? Well, I, I wouldn't say that, that instability is a bad way to describe it. <laughs> Certainly not right now. But uh, I think if, if you take Latin American politics as a whole, like over the decades, uh, I think it's the region in the world where where class politics most clearly manifest themselves. You have a very clear divide between left and right, between working class and the capitalist class. Uh, so so it it's almost a very traditional politics in that sense. Uh, but in in recent years, this has gotten more muddled. Uh, You've got this issue of uh, corruption coming in. Uh, Bolsonaro has lost popularity as he's seen as more corrupt and incompetent uh, because he was the guy that came in promising to, you know, root out corruption. The Workers' Party was seen as quite corrupt. The other traditional right-wing Brazilian parties were seen as quite corrupt. Uh, But then Bolsonaro has proven to be even more so. 
in Peru, a lot of the older uh, major parties like Popular Force, which was the party of the Fujimoris, the, the children of Alberto Fujimori, the, the former president, they were wiped out in the last elections because of corruption scandals. Uh, meanwhile, the Peruvian president, Martin Vizcarra, who's like more of a centrist kind of guy, he's quite popular because he's seen as very different from this long line of corrupt presidents that they've had. So you see this trend of, of judicial politics, of, of prosecution against corruption, and then the electorate being uh, very influenced by that. Uh, Lula was imprisoned in 2018. He was prevented from, from uh, running for president against Bolsonaro over corruption charges. Rafael Correa, the former president of Ecuador, was recently convicted in absentia for corruption. Uh, so on the one hand, you have the fact that it's important for those who, you know, have have done wrong, who have stolen money, whatever, to face justice, but it can also be very politically motivated, like in the case with Lula, where Sergio Moro was the judge, uh, and then it was revealed he collaborated with the prosecution to jail Lula, and then he ends up with uh, a spot in the Bolsonaro government as justice minister. Uh, which he has recently resigned from. Yeah, and there's a lot of really interesting stories there. And I think uh, a lot of Europeans um, just really don't know anything about Latin American politics. It's just not very well reported um, in the European media. And so and so, America elects is, a, is an invaluable resource um, for, for those who want to use the English language media to understand more of politics all over the world. Just to finish up, um, could you give us your prediction for the election that perhaps will be the most followed in the world uh, in this year? And that is, of course, in the United States uh, in November. What's your prediction? <laughs> yeah, I think it's it's really hard to say. I think it's too <laughs> early for it's too early for me right now, because if if you ask me, if you ask me four years ago, uh, how, how's the twenty sixteen election going to turn out? Who is Hillary or Trump going to win? I would have told you, you know, it's Hillary in a landslide. It's it's no question. How could how could Trump win the presidential election? But he did, and so I think it's I think it's completely foolish to count him out right now. Biden is strong in the polls so far. Uh, there's been a bit of a dip. We'll see where that goes. But there's still plenty of time before the election. A lot can happen. Uh, so I think I think we've just got to wait and see, and I might not be able to give you a a clear answer to this even on election night. So, <laughs> well, we will uh, certainly be Biden our time, um, <laughs> very much. Uh, before then, we'll be uh, looking out and following uh, America Alex's coverage, um, and of course, make sure you follow uh, America Alex on Twitter. Um, that's uh, at uh, America Elige, uh in Spanish, of course. Uh, yes, E-L-I-G-E. -E. There we go. For the non-Spanish speaking uh, world, that is how you spell, um, which includes me, so I don't know why I said that. But thank you so much, <laughs> Liam, for coming on. This has been really interesting, and I'm sure we'll have you back again to talk about some of the big stories in South America. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thanks very much. All right. Bye. Cheers, Liam. Well, believe it or not, we're, we still haven't run out of European commissioners to teach you all about. 
Uh, it's time for this episode's Who is Who? European Commission Edition. Woo! Woo! And um, this week, I'm going to tell you all a bit more about Paolo Gentiloni. Uh, he's the European Commissioner for Economy, representing Italy. Um, he is, in fact, the predecessor of Italy's current Prime Minister, Giuseppe Conte, serving as the head of the country for about a year and a half, um, from December 2016 to June 2018, which is a lifetime in Italian politics. Um, he is a member of the centre-left Partito Democratico, uh, which he led as president until February of this year, in fact. So Gentiloni has spent almost 20 years at the forefront of Italian centre-left politics, and I saw I've run through his CV very quickly. Um, in 2002, he was a founding member of the centrist La Margherita, serving as its communication spokesman for five years. In 2006, he was elected as part of the Lulivo coalition, subsequently becoming Minister of Communications under Prime Minister Prodi. In 2007, he was a founding member of the Democratic Party, which was a merger between La Margarita, a party called DS, and other center-left parties. In spring of 2013, he became the third in his party's primary for the Rome mayoral election. He quickly bounced back from this defeat, however, and a year later when he was appointed Minister of Foreign Affairs under Matteo Renzi a position he held until becoming prime minister in late 2016. So all of that then led him um, to becoming commissioner for economy um, at the EU commission, which is a really uh, prestigious position, of course. Uh, it sort of goes without saying that his duties include deepening the economic and monetary union, fighting tax fraud, applying the EU stability and growth pact, uh, and designing a European unemployment benefit scheme. Wow, that truly is a, a stunning career. Yeah. Now, not far off the Italian southern coast is the home country of Helena Dali, a Maltese politician currently serving as the European Commissioner for Equality. She's a member of the Maltese centre-left party, PL. Dali started her parliamentary career as Secretary for Women's Rights in the office of the Prime Minister, with, with one of her main accomplishments being the island nation's first white paper on domestic violence. Between 2013 and 2019, she served under President Joseph Muscat, first as Minister for Social Dialogue, Consumer Affairs and Civil Liberties, and then as Minister for European Affairs and Equality. This is a little fun fact about Dali. She is Malta's most elected woman ever, having been elected in five subsequent elections uh, with PL's Agatha Barbara, uh, the country's first female president, being ahead of her with 10 parliamentary terms and PM's Giovanni De Bono with six. As Commissioner for Equality, Helena Dali's tasked with strengthening Europe's commitment to inclusion with regards to developing EU anti-discrimination legislation, developing a European agenda, ensuring implementation of the Work-Life Balance Directive, and exploring the addition of a violence against women to the list of EU crimes. So truly a woman with quite an impressive career and record in her field. Thank you for listening to the Europolex podcast. Make sure you subscribe and leave a review, guys. Also, to stay up to date with European politics, make sure you follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. You can find us at europolex.eu and at europolex across all social media, except Instagram, that is. Uh, as I say every time, it's at europe underscore lex if you want to follow us there. Um, so thank you and see you next time. Stay home, stay safe. You've been listening to the Europe Alex podcast hosted by me, Ewan Healy, and Gabriel Hedengren. 
The managing editor was Polychronis Karepoulos. The producer and audio engineers were Raphael Peña-Rios and Leon Liesener. The script was written by our host and Matthew Nicholson. And the music was by Jose Alvarado.